Praise the Lord, my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, uh, nor does he harbor his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, nor repay us according to our iniquities. No, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is the Lord's love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he, he knows how we are formed. He, he remembers that we are, are dust. Mortals are like grass. We, we're like a, a flower that flourishes in the field. And then the wind comes, blows on it, and, and then it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you servants of his who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Good morning, Grace Chapel. 
It is so good to be with all of you here today. Great to be here with uh, those of you here at the Lexington campus. Haven't been here in a while, so it's good to see some familiar faces. Welcome to our folks at the Watertown and in the Wilmington campuses and at East Lexington as well. Um, we are glad you're here. And a special shout out this morning to those who are watching this sermon uh, via the internet on a computer or on a device. I did some travel this, uh, this summer back in July, about four weeks. And uh, every week we were able to hear the messages here at Grace through this device and keep up with the summer series. So a special welcome to those of you who are doing that. Well, years ago, leadership guru Stephen Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, um, shared a story about a young expert that he'd heard speaking to a group of business students. And uh, it's now a familiar illustration, um, but there's a little doubt that the metaphor that that teacher used on that day uh, le left a lasting impression on the students who heard it. And uh, if you haven't heard it, after I share it with you, my guess is that it's going to leave a lasting impression for you, too. It's a hard one to forget once you've heard it. So this man stood up in front of a group of some high-powered overachievers, and he said, okay, it's time for a quiz. And he reached down, and he grabbed a glass mason jar. And uh, then he reached out, and he grabbed a few fist-sized rocks, and one at a time, he placed those rocks very carefully in the glass jar. Now, these rocks are actually from the bottom of Lake Pleasant. I got them there with my five-year-old daughter, Kate, when we were at Camp of the Woods last week. So she's watching, so uh, I told her I'd give her a little shout-out. Once he filled the jar with the rocks, he asked the students, is the jar filled? And the class together said, yes. And he said, are you sure? And then he went to reach down once again under his desk, and he pulled out a bucket full of gravel, and he started to pour it into the top of the jar. And the pieces of gravel started to settle in, and as he shook them, they shook to the bottom and filled up that jar until it looked something like this. And then he said again, all right. Another question. Is the jar filled yet? And one guy said, probably not. He said, you're catching on. He reaches down, he takes a, a bucket of sand, and he begins to pour the sand in and shake it until the sand settled into all the gaps and, and filled right up to the brim. And again, he reaches down and he pulls out a bucket of water. And he pours the bucket of water on top of the sand. And the water settles into the bottom until it's filled right to the brim. So after he does all of that, this presentation, he says to his students, now what's the point of the illustration? What, what do we learn from this? And one student raised his hand and said, the point is, is that no matter how full your schedule is, if you try hard enough, you can always cram more stuff in, right? <laughs> Overachievers. He said, no, no, no. He said, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is unless... You put the big rocks in first, you will never fit them in the bucket at all. That's the point of the story. Now, for the last several weeks, we've been making our way through a series that we've been calling Reset. 
Um, and in the closing days of these, as these closing days of the summer, summer months draw nigh, and as we enjoy the last remnants of summer and get excited about the fall, uh, we understand that we're readying ourselves for life as the calendar pages turn for a hectic season very often when uh, kids go back to school and we enter into uh, a full-paced life once again. And we've chosen to pause right here at this moment to, to hit reset before our feet hit the ground running. And for some of you, that's this week. So we are, we are rapidly approaching. Um, but we want to choose to enter into this fast-paced month of September and all the responsibilities of the fall to move into the season in a way that, that allows us to experience life and joy and purpose rather than being overwhelmed and feeling scattered and as if we've been run over by life. And so we've been considering the role of Sabbath, the role of rest and rhythm and perspective making, and, uh, and the expectations that we set for ourselves and that others set for us. And if you're anything like me, um, as you begin to approach September, you realize how easy it is to, be, uh, to lose sight of those things and to live our September lives uh, as if all we're doing is juggling pebbles, uh, filling our jar with all of the little stones that people give to us and that we give to ourselves. And if we're not careful, we find our jars uh, filled with stones and sand before we even start to think what's really important. And so, what if there was one big rock? What if there was one big rock that, that if we placed it in the jar first, might help us to give some, some perspective and allow us to live life well this, this uh, season. So I believe that the psalm that Scott recited for us at the beginning of this message uh, gives us some insight into these matters and actually points us to that one big rock. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. The psalm is a song of worship to God. And I believe that the worship of God is the first and most important rock that we could put into our jar. Now this psalm and this idea met me a couple of weeks ago, a little late in the summer. As I said, this summer my family and I were, were traveling. So there were six of us in a minivan that traveled from Boston to Minneapolis all the way out to Wyoming and back for four weeks. Six souls went out, can I say, and six souls came back. So we were relieved to have made the trip and to even enjoy each other, uh, mostly, all the way along that ride. But while we were on the road, I was tracking with one of our families from our Wilmington campus, whose mom had suddenly taken ill and who fairly rapidly found herself clinging to life. Uh, her name was Ruth Stratton, and she was a 59-year-old woman. She was a, she was a wife, uh, and she was a mother of three grown girls and a grandmother of uh, several grandkids as well. So sadly, after, shortly after I returned home, Ruth passed away. And on the Friday of the week of the summit here at Grace, I took that Friday morning and skipped out on the sessions and uh, made my way up to New Hampshire to her funeral. Uh, where it was celebrated there near the church they attended in New Hampshire. And so at that funeral, one of the daughters read a reflection on her mother's life. And her words left all of us just 
deeply, deeply impacted. It, she read a description of a woman who seemed to get life right. Uh, her daughter said that her mom was her best friend. She said that her home was a place of refuge for everyone who came. She had the great gift of hospitality. She said her mom was a wonderful uh, gardener who, who saw the beauty of God in, in the tiniest detail of every flower petal that bloomed. And she was a woman that they remembered often sitting out on the front porch uh, with her Bible open, looking out at the early morning sun. She was a friend who helped others grow in, in their faith as well. She led a Bible study at her church and brought people along in the faith, constantly looking to do things like that. And she was a person who sought to make a difference in the lives of people who were in need. She often spearheaded organized fundraisers for missions and other uh, charitable causes. And as, as her daughter was reading a description of Ruth's life, I found within my soul this yearning growing. I wanted my life to be like that. I wanted to live life with the same intention that Ruth lived her life. Um, she seemed to be a woman who understood the thin veil that exists between heaven and earth. And it sounded to me like what she tried to do with her life was to, was to push that channel open wide so that people could experience and know the beauty and goodness of this world and of eternity. So... This all happened just the, day, uh, just the day before, or just the day after I'd been to the leadership summit, I said. And uh, as I was listening uh, there at the summit, I was listening to some of the most innovative and influential leaders in society and in industry today and in the church uh, around the world. None of them inspired me as much as Ruth's story inspired me that morning. She wasn't leading an organization or industry, but she was a personal example of faith. Uh, hers was a personal example of faith and generous love that, that changed the lives of those who fell within her sphere of influence. And I thought, I want to live like that. How about you? Well, what struck me was that the beauty of her life radiated out from something that was deep inside of her core. A little later in the service, Psalm 103 was read. And like that, it hit me. The connection between the settledness of her life and her worship of God came into clear focus. Um, it's a gift, the settledness that comes to us when our lives are rooted in the worship of God. It's what it's at the heart, at the very heart of our Sabbath keeping, by the way. You see, Sabbath keeping isn't simply about taking a nap on Sunday or more naps on Sunday, um, though some of you have been practicing that uh, discipline. That's good. It's not just about making more space in your life for more leisure time, like, like golfing or, or going to the beach and sitting in the sand, though those things are very nice and wonderful things to enjoy in the summertime. Sabbath-keeping, though, at its heart, is about putting God at the center of your life. And it's through worship that we can do that most purposefully. So worship is the first and biggest of the big rocks that, when rightly placed, help us with everything else. It can change the way we enter into a frenzied season of life. Now, all of this raises some some questions, and I want us to go after some of those questions for a few minutes, and we're going to use Psalm 103 as a guide. So if you've got a Bible, you can open to Psalm 103. I'll have some verses on the screens as well. 
But the first question is this. What is worship? What is worship? Well, a few weeks ago, Pastor Brian defined worship this way. He said, worship is delighting in God and his gifts. Now, I don't just like that definition because Pastor Brian spoke it, and he's kind of the big cheese around here. But it's a really good definition. Delighting in God and his good gifts is what worship is all about. It's what David was doing when he wrote the song. He was delighting in God. Uh, the definition helps us see that worship isn't just about singing songs together when we get together for services, uh, though that's a part of it. Uh, it worship can happen when we, when we pull out a lawn chair in the middle of the night after midnight and place it on our deck and look up at the stars in the sky as the Perseid meteor showers makes its way overhead. And we appreciate that as a gift from God. Worship happens when we're using our God-given talents in the workplace for the common good and for the benefit of our family and those around us. Worship happens when we enjoy and appreciate the people in our lives that God has brought. Worship comes, of course, when we simply find ourselves grateful to who God is and what he's done. When When we're grateful for his character, that he's not a distant and uncaring God, but he's present and personal. So we find that we can worship God anytime, anywhere, in many circumstances. Worship isn't bound to the walls of the church. The second question, though, is this. What leads us to worship? What leads us to worship? Well, I believe that delighting in God begins by dwelling on God. Delighting in starts when we dwell on It's where the psalmist starts his psalm of praise. He turns his thoughts towards God and listens to his words. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Forget not his benefits. Forgetting not means remembering. Means turning our minds towards the things that took place. And the best place we can go to recall the benefits of the person of God, what, who he is and what he's done, is to the stories of God found in the scriptures. And it's these stories that are spelled out for us in the pages of the Bible where we get the clearest picture of who God is. In fact, uh, we live in a time, the truth is, where we are bombarded by all kinds of stories, right? Um, our beach bags are full of paperback books that we, that we bring out with tattered edges filled with all kinds of stories. Uh, TV, on TV, sitcoms come at us every single night. Our kids' shelves are overflowing with bedtime tales. We pick one out every night, or two or three, story after story. And of course, movies bring us stories at at a nonstop pace. And the immersive experience of a movie literally transports us into like new worlds and universes. Um, everything from the Star Wars galaxies to the worlds of, of Middle Earth to, to, the, the, uh, to the Marvel Universe, all right? So we, we're bombarded with stories. We can watch a new story and a different story every single night if we want. Sometimes I get them confused, by the way. Uh, I went to uh, Mission Impossible 5, you know, 
uh, Tom Cruise's new movie, and as I went, I said, okay, I have to remember one, two, three, and four, Mission Impossible, and I realized it was 19 years since Mission Impossible 4 came out, so I cut myself a little slack for not remembering all the details, um, and, but I found myself sort of getting the stories all jumbled up from one story universe, uh, spy universe to the next, and I'm like, was that, that wasn't, that wasn't Ethan Hunt, that was, that was Jason Bourne, wait, what? What movie am I going to see? Like 007, uh, Austin Powers. I couldn't remember whose story it was I was trying to track with. Um, and, and that's what happens. And all these stories, of course, and all these universes are, are fun and wonderful to enter into. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can allow all these stories to become like cluttered stones that sort of fill up our jar of stories and in the midst, they, they have the potential to edge out the, the big story, the grand story of God that really beckons for our attention. And if we don't make space for God's stories, if we don't give our minds the freedom and the room to remember who God is and what he's done, then we'll miss out on the very, very thing that fuels and gives energy to our worship and so if we're going to make space for worship, we need to make room in our minds for the story of, stories of God. I was recently talking with a young woman who is a first-time mom. She gave birth to a preemie little girl. And uh, so she was spending a lot of face time with her daughter, Lucy, sitting on her knee. She's uh, also had uh, a, an oxygen uh, tank connected to her as her lungs were developing. So she really had a lot of one-on-one uh, -on -one time with this little girl. And she said, I found myself just talking to her. And I told my mom about that, and she said, don't forget to tell her the stories of God. And she said, suddenly I realized I had so much more to talk about. She said, I thought, what story do I know? What's on my mind? She said, I've been thinking about Christmas. So there, with little Lucy in her lap, she began to tell the Christmas story. And she says, as I did, I realized the complexity of this story and the beauty of it, the, the, the nature of the characters uh, involved in the story of God coming to the world and, and all of their motivations, their feelings, their perplexities. She said, and then I, I was struck by just the simplicity and beauty of the story itself that God entered into the world as a human being. She said, and as I started talking, uh, I found my heart settling more deeply into the story of God. And it was leading her to make space, make room for her to worship God more fully. You see, when we hear David's song, when we hear the psalm that was read, we hear in his praises echoes of God's story. When he says, praise the Lord, my soul, forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins, we remember God's forgiveness offered to King David after he sinned with Bathsheba. We recall the, how God offers a fresh start to Nineveh when Nineveh finally turns from its sin and, and turn toward, turns towards God. We, we think about the whole nation of Israel who finds forgiveness as the priest goes before the altar offering sacrifice on behalf of the people. And we remember the forgiveness that comes to the woman that Jesus meets at the well. God is a forgiving God. And he heals all your diseases. He heals your diseases. I can imagine David remembering the stories, the story of Elijah raising the widow's son 
reminds us of Naaman being healed of leprosy dipped in the water. Or when Moses lifted the bronze snake above the people of Israel who had been bitten by venomous snakes. And when they turn and look up, their disease is healed. Their sickness is taken away. We remember the forgiveness. We remember the healing of Jairus' daughter. The blind man at the gate. The cripple who was brought to Jesus. God is a healing God who redeems your life from the pit. What story comes to mind? Joseph. Joseph in the pit, twice redeemed from the pit by God. The story of Daniel, who's in the pit of the lion's den. God shuts the mouths of the lion. David's rescue from Saul, the people of Israel's redemption from Egypt, and salvation that comes to each and every one of us through a redeeming Jesus who loves us and buys us back by his blood. And he crowns us with love and compassion. He satisfies our desires with good things. Our youth is renewed like eagles. Who can say amen to that one? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. Do you hear the echoes of the story of God in the worship words of David, the psalmist? You see, every great experience of worship is rooted in the rehearsing and remembering of God's story and in the in the faith that that same God who is work, at work in the world then is at work in our present experience here and now. With us while we worship. And the confidence that, that the work he's begun in this world will one day be brought to completion fully and finally. Worship happens when we dwell on God. Francis Chan says, isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? Now, of course, we can worship by ourselves alone. And we do that all the time. And I've listed a number of ways that we do that. But we do this together too, corporately, as we gather together every Sunday. That's what we do in this room. That's what we do where we are, worshiping together with others. We open the Bible, we sing, we pray, we remind each other of the goodness of God. Uh, we we open the scriptures and delight in them together as a community. Um, and everybody knows that if you want to make your life, something in your life more of a priority, don't just do it alone. Find other people to do it with you. Together, you can make greater gains than all by yourself. If you want to be more healthy, get a group of people together who, who want to exercise with you and eat right. And we do that all the time. We, we get groups together that we go to the gym and we exchange text encouragements in the morning or exercises. We, we shoot each other little videos that show how to do the exercise properly so we don't blow out our backs or whatever. Uh, and, and we do this all the time. We share recipes and all of it. Communal reinforcement of a shared priority makes that thing a greater priority for everyone involved. The same is true for us as we gather for worship. We reinforce each other's shared commitment to making space in our lives for the big rock of worship. It's what we offer each other right here in these gatherings. As we look around, we, we share 
this together. Someone once said that corporate worship is a regular, gracious reminder we give to each other that life is not about you. But we've been born into a life that is a celebration of another. And we need to be reminded about that by each other. So dwelling on leads to delighting in. Dwelling on leads to delighting in. Well, leads us to one final question. How does worship help us to reset? Like what practical difference does it make in our lives as we make our way forward? How does it help us make choices about the pebbles that we end up filling our jar with or not putting in the jar? Well, it helps us, I believe, because when we understand who God is, his greatness, his love, his goodness, we begin to get a better handle on who we are and what our lives are about. So worship helps us discover a proper perspective about ourselves and our lives. And when we understand who we are and what our life is about, we have a better way forward when it comes to all of this. Well, listen to David reflect on his own life in light of his worship, what he finds out and discovers about himself. He says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. The first perspective, giving truth that we hear when we worship, is that our lives are exceedingly short. True. Not necessarily what we all want to hear, but true. Our lives are short. In light of an eternal God, our life is like a vapor. Our our life in this world is extremely finite, like a flower that flourishes and goes away, and its place doesn't even remember it. Now, this truth alone can be hard to take. And it can lead us into one of two destructive uh, directions. It can either lead us to just throw up our hands and say, well then, you know, I give up. Whatever happens, happens. I don't have long to live. You know, put whatever in the jar that you want. Or it can lead us in the opposite direction where we feel the sense of urgency about our days. And and we, we find ourselves sifting through small pebbles, hoping desperately that one of them will lead us to some joy, purpose, meaning, hope. And so we don't say no to anything, and we find ourselves listless in pursuit of something of significance. One of those two is a real possibility when we recognize the brevity of our days. But fortunately, it's not the only truth that we learn when we worship. The second truth is is its companion, and it's this. That life is exceedingly short, but we are eternally loved. Now that's a truth that when coupled with the other, becomes great in its meaning. Hear the psalmist say it again. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember his days Uh, Remember to obey his promises. You see, though our life is short on this earth, we have a God whose love will be with us from everlasting to everlasting. 
this life is not all there is. Our finitude is met by God's everlasting love. Now, I'm not exactly sure why the collision of these two ideas does what it does in my own soul. But when I find myself worshiping God and reflecting on who he is, I do think about the shortness of my days, 47 years and counting, closer to the end than I was yesterday. And I also find myself reflecting on the eternal love of a God who meets me. There's something about the collision of those two ideas that brings my soul to a place of settledness and gives me a sense of confidence about the days ahead. I think it's something has something to do with why, as Matthew Sleeth put it, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath keeping, is that bridge commandment between heaven, the bridges between heaven and earth, uh, between our mortality and our eternity. Uh, worship sort of opens up that channel between the two and starts to make it wider so that we see the significance of the things that happen in our finite days and we realize the hope that is before us of an eternity where all things will be made new and, and, and that we, we move back and forth between those realities effortlessly. And as a result, it just leads us to this place of peace. You see, if life is short and we're eternally loved, then we don't have to live with fear. We don't have to fear when, when the Dow plunges a thousand points on a Monday morning. Life is short. God's love is eternal. Or, or we don't have to let disappointments keep us down. Maybe the failure of our own expectations of ourselves or the failure that we've made to, to someone else's expectation on us. We don't have to chase after those pebbles if we know we have a God that loves us. We don't have to live life in a scramble. We don't have to live life with a stubborn independence or with this self-reliance or with, with this narrow self-preoccupation. We can be at peace. We don't have to go through life with blinders on either. We can see the beauty and the wonder of creation and understand that it speaks of more than even what it tells us in this world. We can be confident that when we occupy our life with things of God, that we're leaning into things that really matter for an eternity. We can trust that injustice and heartache and evil will someday be made right and that any of our efforts towards that end will not go unfulfilled. We can have a sense of settledness about our own mortality, about our own process of aging. When we look in the mirror and see gray hair and wrinkled faces and know the sagging parts of our body, we can be reminded that this isn't just the marker of the end of this life. This is a reminder that the life to come is just at the doorway. We are nearly there, a prelude to eternity. Wouldn't it be great to age with that kind of dignity? Well, back to the jars. This morning, I'm not telling you which rock to put in your jar, which ones are most important for you. What I'm telling you is that unless we put the rock, this big rock of worship in first, we won't have it. It isn't going to force its way into our lives. 
And I'm not saying that when it is there, that all these questions work themselves out. It's still a challenge. But if we make space for God and the worship of him, then it puts all the other things into rightful perspective. One final thought this morning. Worship is a determined act. It's a determined act. What does the psalmist say at the beginning? Bless the Lord, my soul. What is he doing? And at the end, bless the Lord, my soul. He's willing his soul to turn his attention towards the praise of God. Like that's not something we just wait around until it happens. That's something we make a decision about and we walk with intention. And so at the beginning of a new year, the question is where are we making room for that to happen in our lives? Are we willing ourselves and our spirit to be ready for worship? Are we going to make Sundays a regular priority to be at church, to worship with God's people, to be reminded of these things? Are we going to carve out those, those porch moments with God alone during our day? Are we going to find time to talk about with other people how important and central the worship of God is in our lives, in our life communities, in our friendship circles, with others who are mutually sharing that same pursuit? And when we come to worship, by the way, let's not just wait to sing until we feel moved to sing. Let's move our voices. And if we can't, let's listen with, with great delight in who God is. And if you do take a nap on a Sunday afternoon, before you nod off, think about some things that God has done in your life, who he is, and let those be the thought that lead you to sleep. If you do go golfing, while you're swinging the clubs, look around at the beauty of the creation that God has made and turn those moments into moments of worship. Because when we make room for worship, we fill the jar of our lives with the one thing that really matters. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these moments. We thank you for this chance to turn our attention to you. We thank you that we are never let down when we gain clearer picture of who you are, your great love for us, the forgiveness that we find in you, the promise for the future and eternity that is ours through a God who loves us and redeemed us through his son Jesus. We thank you, God. We thank you for a chance to reflect on these things at this moment. In Christ's name we pray, amen.